National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. The United States Supreme Court has agreed to take up a key abortion case in 2024. The nation's highest court will weigh in on how patients can access a widely used abortion pill, Mifepristone. The Register's national correspondent, Loretta Brown, brings us this story and more from the Register's coverage of abortion in the U.S. But first, we get an update on what seems to be a standoff between the Vatican and German bishops. This comes from Jonathan Liedel, who has been reporting on this story from Rome. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and Catholic News Agency, and I'm your host here on Register Radio. I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew Bunsen, who is EWTN News' Vice President and Editorial Director. The Vatican and the Catholic bishops of Germany, as, as you've heard on this show many time, times, has, are engaged in this high-stakes game of what Jonathan has called before on the show, ecclesiastical chicken. It's basically a standoff that's centered on the German synodal way, and we're going to get an update on that today from Jonathan. Uh, the, Vatican, the Vatican has basically issued verbal verbal stop signs all along the way over the last two years, basically. Um, but the, the bishops have, and the synodal way, basically, has continued to push forward with their controversial agenda. We're going to hear a lot more about that agenda and how it is moving forward. But recently, Pope Francis appointed two new German bishops last weekend. Uh, and we want to know how these will play into uh, the German Synodal Way. So, Jonathan Liedel, we're happy to have you joining us from Rome. Uh, thanks for being with us. Great to be with you, Jeanette and Matthew. So, as I said, we've got two new bishops. I am not going to try to pronounce their names. I will leave that to you and Matthew, who are much better at language than me. Um, but these two bishops uh, may have an effect on the dynamics that are happening in Germany right now regarding the Synodal Way. Uh, so, Jonathan, what what can you tell us about the two bishops who were appointed recently? You know, Germany has had actually four dioceses without bishops, uh, some for over a year, uh, but in total, really going back to March, there's there's been these four vacancies. And so a lot of people have looked to these vacancies and said, hey, if the Pope wants to do something about the situation in Germany, we know that he's issued any number of verbal critiques of the Synodal Way, expressed his concerns on it. But a lot of people said, hey, if he really wants to do something about it, maybe this is an opportunity. Maybe it's a chance to um, kind of put his guys, if you will, or at least bishops who are who are going to be openly uh, critical uh, of the Synodal Way and, and maybe not participate in some elements into key positions. So it's natural to think uh, that, right? I mean, it's ob obviously natural you would put m maybe mediating people in these in these new appointments. So I, I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and it's absolutely the case that there, there's no other way that the Vatican made these appointments without taking the wider context of, of, of the Synodal Way into account. So obviously you're, you're concerned about the diocese you're putting a man in charge of as its, you know, as its pastor. Uh, but given, you know, that, that high stakes game of ecclesial chicken, as I like to call it, 
you can't help but take that into account when making these appointments. So is that what happened? Well, on, on Saturday, uh, the news came out of the Vatican in the Bulletino at noon that the Pope had picked not just one, but two new archbishops in Germany, something that, uh, according to German media, had not happened in at least in recent uh, memory, recent history, that you get two new archbishops uh, in a country with only 27 dioceses. Uh, so who are those bishops? Well, they're Bishop Hervé Gessel, uh, who actually was elevated from uh, being the diocesan administrator of an archdiocese uh, called Bamberg in Bavaria, and he'll be the new archbishop of it. And then Bishop Udo Benz, who's been an auxiliary bishop uh, of the Diocese of Mainz and is now the archbishop of Paderborn. Um, so to, but to go back to what I said at the beginning, yeah, how do these guys affect the synodal way? And are they those kinds of big shakeup picks that some people thought the Pope might do? I think the answer is not quite. Uh, I think you can definitely look at Bishop Gessel and you can, he, he's definitely perhaps more in the more conservative spectrum of the German bishops. Uh, he voted against, back in September, if we recall, there was this uh, a base text at a synodal way assembly, really advancing all kinds of heterodox ideas on sexuality, that 21 bishops voted against and basically spiked it. And he was the one of the ones to vote against it. Um, he also just said after his appointment that um, while maybe an issue like mandatory priestly celibacy is something uh, that in his opinion could be handled differently in different parts of the world, when it comes to this church structure, when it comes to ordination and, and the male-only male holy orders, that's something that Germany has to be doing in lock, lockstep with the universal church. So perhaps more conservative, but him, like Bishop Benz, who is probably more of a typical pro-synodal way German bishop, um, these guys voted uh, to, to establish this synodal committee that's setting up that uh, permanent synodal council that you mentioned in the introduction the Vatican is banned. So really, the assessment from people on the ground in Germany is that, no, this is not a big uh, shake-up pick from Pope Francis, but rather it, it's more uh, a move to perhaps elevate um, some more moderate voices uh, in the German episcopacy. Yeah, and Gussel also in, endorsed the the resolution, didn't he? Uh, what was basically a demand from the synodal way for reevaluating uh, the teachings of the Church on homosexuality within the magisterium, right? Yeah, he did, and so I think an interesting, and that might illustrate honestly what I've what I've heard from people in Germany about Herwig Gessel. Um, you know, that vote back in September that I mentioned that happened before the votes were public, right? So he was one of twenty one bishops who, kind of under the cloak of anonymity felt comfortable voting against that. But once the organizers of the synodal way said, no, all your votes are going to be on the record now, he kind of changed his tune. That that uh, vote you talked about, Matthew, yes, he voted yes for. On a number of other controversial issues, he abstained from voting. So the sense I've gotten from talking to people with him is that, yes, he, he's definitely you know, has some conservative sensibilities about him. Uh, I mean, conservative is not the right word, right? Like some, some sensibilities that are in harmony with the, the universal faith of, of the church, right, when it comes to issues like sexuality and ordination uh, and church governance. Um, but people, you know, the, the read is that he's not going to be one of these stalwarts, right? We think of people like Cardinal Rainer Velke of Cologne. We think of Bishop Stephen Oster of Passau, Bishop Rudolf uh, Voderhoser of Regensburg, Bishop Gregor Henke of Eichstätt. These are the four bishops who have publicly said no, we're not going to continue participating in the next phase of the synodal way, the synodal committee. Uh, the Vatican has has said 
nine, right? And we're and we're backing off, right? But the sense is that that Bishop Getzel, uh, even though he might have some conservative sensibilities, um, at least right now, is not uh, probably in in a position to join them. Uh, so that's kind of that that's kind of where it's at. So what does this tell us uh, about the Vatican's approach to this? Because it sounds as though they have a known quantity uh, of bishops, a known body in front of them. And they would have to do something really dramatic, wouldn't they, in order to make substantive changes within the German episcopate? Yeah, I think that, I think what we can really clearly see is that, for whatever reason, the Vatican is choosing not to upset the apple cart. If you, I mean, we might already say that the, the, there's already a crisis in Germany, right? So, um, but but the Vatican it is not choosing to be heavy-handed, right? They're not choosing to intervene strongly. Um, at least with action in in the affairs of, of the Catholic Church in Germany, you know Pope Francis every three months or so has pretty pointed comments about the German synodal way. And in fact, back in November, when they were holding their first committee meeting to set up the synodal council, uh, a letter that he had written to four German Catholic laywomen was published. And actually, the the Secretary of State of the Vatican was very eager to have the women publish it when they asked for permission. Uh, and the Pope said that there are concrete steps being taken in Germany right now that threaten to take the, the church increasingly further away from, from the path of the universal church. And he cited the Synodal Committee in particular. So the words are strong, but you're right, Matthew. I think I'm going to just share based off the, the background conversations I'd ha- I've had with people, including bishops in Germany. Like the situation seems to be this. The majority of German bishops are not interested in schism with Rome. They are not ideologically committed enough to the proponent to the elements of the synodal way to risk serious disciplinary action or even being excommunicated from Rome. Most of the German bishops are not in the, that's not where they're at, right? But at the same time, the German bishops, uh, many of them because they have sympathies with some of the elements of the synodal way, uh, because they feel such an extraordinary amount of pressure uh, from uh, kind of powerful German lay organizations, church employee lobbies, diocesan associations, and also the media, um, or a combination of all those factors, they're not going to change what they've been doing without Vatican intervention. So the Vatican has has prioritized this dialogue. They had talks with the delegation of the German bishops back in July. They're going to have another talk in January, two more in 2024 before we reach um, in October, the, the second session of the Universal Church's Synod on Synodality. So the Vatican, yeah, they, they seem to think, okay, we're going to keep the dialogue going. We're going to put moderates like Gessel and Bentz in place. But, but my sense, Matthew, I'd love to hear what you think, is that without actual agitation from the Vatican without upping the pressure, no amount of dialogue and no amount of moderates kind of in the German Episcopacy is actually going to compel more German bishops to break away from the synodal way because they just don't, A, they don't think the Vatican will come down on them hard enough if they if they don't, and then B, they just think the, the, the negative repercussions within Germany are actually going to be worse for them. Uh, so that seems to be where the situation is at, <laughs> if you will. Yeah, Jonathan, it just—it's fascinating to me because I—it—it seems—it seems to me that the church is so bad off, you know, from the ground up um, that you—you you need these bishops to take courage, <laughs> you know, to mm-hmm. take heart. It's—it's it's so strange to see. 
um, bishops in a place of um, a sort of ambiguity, like, oh, we're just going to sort of stay in this gray zone, right? Rather than than truly lead, it makes you ask the question, well, who's in charge? <laughs> you know, who, yeah. who is actually leading the church? And, and how do you answer that question, having studied this now for a good year? Yeah, who is leading the church in Germany? Well, you know, I had one conversation, uh, I answered in a sideways way, I had a conversation with a bishop recently in Germany. And, um, you know, he, he, he was not necessarily optimistic about how this would be resolved. But he said, really, what matters in Germany are not these hot, these big structures they have in place, these these big diocesan apparatuses, but what really matters are are kind of the spiritual oases in Germany. And there are still good places where the faith is vital, uh, where it's being lived out. Um, there are some good bishops, there are some good dioceses. So, yeah, it's it's kind of a crisis of leadership uh, from from the German bishops um, who who are you know effectively the uh you know they're they are the bishop right their their job is the shepherd but they just feel so constrained by so many of these elements and so it's difficult to see a way out if no one as you as you talked about Jeanette no one steps up with confidence and says yeah I might face incredible ridicule I might face like the German press might just completely rake me through the coals uh my diocesan employees might turn their back on me completely. I might be the most isolated man in my diocese, but I have to do something, right? Because at the end of the day, um, simply keeping the status quo going is not what I'm, I'm called to do. I'm called right. to to teach the gospel and to stand for it. And so uh, I think at, at the very least, we can we can hope and pray that, that some of these German bishops who are kind of on the fence um, yeah, are inspired, uh, are inspired by the martyrs, are inspired by Christ uh, and the truth that there's no greater love than to lay down your life for a friend, right? And to lay down your life uh, in a way uh, for the church in Germany. So and that, definitely that something Christ, to pay yeah, attention that, to. Absolutely. And that Christ is the same, uh, right? Uh, yesterday, uh, today, and, and always. So we, we do pray for that. Um, we pray for that maybe as a as a Christmas blessing, a Christmas hope. So, Jonathan, thank you for following uh, the important news um, related to, to the German church uh, and, and the Vatican. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, abortion cases that are making the way to the Supreme Court and in some state courts with Loretta Brown, the National Catholic Register's national reporter. This is Register Radio on EWTN. Stay tuned for more. If you need your news on the go, read the register online. But if you want to take your time and savor the stories, then subscribe to the National Catholic Register's print edition. And with award-winning Catholic journalism that goes beyond what you'll find from any secular news service, you'll get the real story behind the events that unfold over the course of the year. Try the register for free today and get it delivered to your home, office, or parish. Join the Catholics who depend on the Register for its faithful and courageous reporting. Get six issues free today online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. 
Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and Catholic News Agency. I'm here with Matthew Bunsen, my co-host on Register Radio. This week has been a big week uh, in the battle over abortion access in our country. Uh, The U.S. Supreme Court will be taking up a case related to uh, the growing use, uh, widely used abortion pill. And three state Supreme Courts have also been considering high-profile cases this week. Loretta Brown is the one who covers a lot of this kind of news for the National Catholic Register as our national correspondent. And she joins us now to talk about these cases, a kind of preview, overview of, of these cases. Hi, Loretta. Hi, Jeanette. So first of all, we've got this case in the Supreme Court that they're willing to take up uh, an abortion pill case. This is actually big news because this has been causing a lot of anxiety um, around the country over um, how uh, how, abor- how widely access- accessible the abortion pill is. And there's a great amount of concern over uh, this abortion pill. So we've got a case um, that the court has agreed to take up. Can you tell us a little bit about what that case involves? What are they going to be uh, deciding? Yeah, absolutely. So they're considering the approval process for this abortion pill. And as you mentioned, people have had significant concerns with the FDA approval. Um, you know, So what the court is looking at, has agreed to look at, is um, kind of the, the restrictions on the abortion pill that have been lifted. So there used to be like an in-person requirement prior to taking the, the pill where, or to receiving it, you know, where you would have to meet with a medical professional and um, have some sort of screening. And now it's, you know, by mail or telehealth, it's the Biden administration, um, FDA has, has just kind of widely allowed that. So this is really an opportunity um, to, to take a hard look at some of these significant concerns related to just allowing the abortion pill to um, come to people by mail, um, because you know some of some of these concerns I've talked to pro-lifers uh, who just consistently raise these is ectopic pregnancy can be missed, serious conditions like that, and then there's also um, the gestational age. If it's taken later in pregnancy, past the ten weeks that the FDA has approved, it's so dangerous. There's statistics on that. Pro-life doctors have spoken to that, have really raised the alarm on that. And then there's also even just the question of um, you know people being able to access this pill so easily. There was a male reporter I remember seeing a story where he had ordered an abortion pill regimen under a you know, false name, was able to get everything, access everything. And he was like, wow, I don't, I don't know if maybe I should be able you know, to, to right. do all that. Um, so really some, some things that I think it, it's good that the, the court is taking a hard look at. Are, are there safeguards in place? You know, what, what were the considerations when the FDA allowed this wide um, access to these pills? Right. So what we know is that the case will be heard this term, which means there's likely a decision by summer. So we, we have to we don't know any more about the, the key dates in this, but um, obviously there'll be uh, the the oral arguments, and then late late in the term, usually at the very end, we get a decision. So this will be a very interesting thing for us to follow in 2024. But as I mentioned in the intro, there there were other. Uh, cases making their way uh, uh, through state courts that were significant. Uh, what are what are those that we should note? Yeah, well, the one really making headlines this week was a case in Texas where a woman, she's um, carrying a child with trisomy 18, 
and you know that's a, a the vast majority of cases that condition is fatal um, when the when the baby's born it, it passes away shortly after or up to a year after and um, so she was she was denied um, an, an abortion and it looks now the latest I saw she was traveling out of state to get one but I guess the case being made there was there was a risk to her future fertility possibly. Um, you know, some concerns over uh, just even health concerns there with carrying the pregnancy. And there was a whole medical discussion around that. But following that case, it was just interesting to see there really does seem to be a strategy from abortion advocates of talking about these um, these pregnant women who have more complicated cases like that. And what was kind of saddening to me, frankly, as you know, someone who has been involved with, um, you know, the communities of, of um, you know, people with disabilities and having a brother who has um, Down syndrome and autism is to see how quickly people were saying, oh, yeah, trisomy 18. Why isn't there just some broad exception where that's you can just get an abortion? Like, right. you, why does there even have to be, you know, risk to the mother? Like, yeah, why? Why is that worth going through that? And it was it's it is disheartening to see that dialogue around this case. Um because there were people speaking out who have children with trisomy 18, and in some rare cases, they live into their teens. I right. mean, um, former Senator Rick Santorum spoke out about his daughter Bella with the condition, who's like literally a miraculous witness to to the lives these children can lead. Um, and so it's it was it's been an interesting case to follow, and and to see in these other states also. There's just this focus on these exceptions, these hard cases. But what I'm hearing from pro-life advocates on this is just consistently, you know, the, there's the concern for both lives. There's like nobody wants to, you know, have these women in danger, certainly. But having a child with with challenges is, is not the same thing as, you know, being in medical danger. That's right. And but and also to sympathize with this um, this woman who is experiencing this in Texas. Uh, Kate Cox is her name. It's very it's it's a tragedy when you find out um, that your child has uh, in utero has a disability like this. This is a woman who has two other kids. She wanted this child. Um, but this is what she was experiencing. You know, you, you know, was understanding was her only option for her own health, um, and that's a really sad case. I, I myself have I've lost a, a, a child to um, trisomy 18 in utero. I had a miscarriage. Um, it was the same. It was the same diagnosis, right? Um, and it it is a tragedy. Like it, I, I feel for this woman. I pray for this woman. Um, but the 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 loss um, is as weighty as it is. Is um, is something you can endure, you know, and um, and and that's something that we just don't we, we can't even talk about as a country anymore because this is so um, it, it it's all about rights <laughs> of the woman um, and not enough sometimes about um, helping how to help her through these kind of moments um, and and so I, this is really it's, it's something that touches my heart. <laughs> Um, and and really, I look at what the abortion movement is doing and bringing up these special kinds of cases, and it makes me question, Loretta, what can we do more as a pro-life community um, to to talk about these issues? Do you do you know what pro-life leaders are saying about these kind of cases, um, and how to to reach women um, who really get confused by stuff like this? Yeah, absolutely. I what I have been hearing is compassion is so key here. And this is the other thing is, you know, 
looking at these cases from you know, the legal perspective and the different regulations, it can sound you know, very cold and um, you know, more removed, but I've heard so much from pro-life leaders is we want to show that we are concerned for the woman here. It's not a situation where we're just saying, oh, this woman just has you know, one thing she can do and we, we don't really care otherwise. Like, no, absolutely, there's so much compassion for looking to how what resources can we provide. For example, I, I spoke today with um, the president of Texas Right to Life, and he was telling me about an organization in Texas that provides counseling and resources when there's a tough diagnosis like this um, to women, to families. And I think that has to be a key part of the response to any situation like this. Um, because, yeah, even in my, my own <laughs> personal life and with people I've known, it's, you, you see the impact of something like that. It's not easy. It's not easy to go through that, to, to get a tough diagnosis and to know that you, you have to, yeah, find the strength and the resources to get through that. But that's, you know, in my experience, always been a key part of the pro-life movement is there's always been voices in the, the, pregnant, the Pregnancy Resource Center, certainly, but even beyond that, the, the voices for those with disabilities, um, for their dignity, and not just you know, saying that, but also providing the community, these, these support groups for moms, these resources. So definitely that has to be a key part here. Absolutely. There are women who have experienced this, um, who have mourned that loss, um, and who can help accompany others. And I think that's where we need to make it better known um, that there is a network of support um, and that abortion doesn't have to be the answer. Um, and and that's, that's a message I think we're going to be seeing the need to lean into in 2024 because this is going to be a tough year um, for the abortion battle. Loretta, I'm always grateful uh, for your coverage um, of, of, this, of the pro-life issues and, and of, of uh, abortion in our country. Thank you. Thank you, Jeanette. Remember, for more news, analysis, and commentary, check out the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. Thanks for joining us here on Register Radio on EWTN. For Matthew Bunsen and our producer, Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello, and until next week, I pray God bless you. For more information about the National Catholic Register and about Register Radio, go to ncregister.com. Podcasts of Register Radio are posted on ncregister.com and on EWTN.com. Join us next week at this time for Register Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Lord Jesus Christ, who are called the Prince of Peace, who are yourself our peace and reconciliation, who so often said, Peace to you, grant us peace. Make all men and women witnesses of truth, justice, and brotherly love. Banish from their hearts whatever might endanger peace. Enlighten our rulers that they may guarantee and defend the great gift of peace. May all the peoples of the earth become as brothers and sisters. May longed-for peace blossom forth and reign always over us all. Amen. The EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Count on us to bring you the splendor of truth. Thank you so much. I thank God every day for EWTN. I just love this station, and everybody is so knowledgeable and helpful. I've learned a lot. At home, at work, or in the car, we're always there for you 24-7.